Hello everyone and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I am David Chen, and joining me as always, he is the man who played Dr. Gherkin in the television series Suddenly Susan. Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing very well. I, I remember doing Suddenly Susan. I don't remember Dr. Gherkin too much. When I saw when I saw the name Doctor Gherkin, I thought to myself, "That sounds like something Stephen would do." Yeah, yeah, you know, and and it was it was if you recall, that was must see TV. Suddenly, Susan and working with Brooke Shields there, and that was at the time when Brooke Shields was with Andre Agassi, you know, the tennis star. So he was hanging around the the set as well. It was. Gosh, I wish I had remembered more of of what we did, but I remember how much I enjoyed being with 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 her on that show. Such a professional and such a a great uh, personality, I guess you'd say. I, yeah, I think uh, a lot of shows, you know, everything comes from the top. Like on Seinfeld, really Jerry Seinfeld, his personality. And Larry David's personality were in every, you know, kind of seeped through every day of rehearsal, every moment on that show. And on Suddenly Susan, the same thing could be said, that, that Brooke Shields, her, her professionalism and her calm and desire to work hard kind of siphoned through, through all of us on that show. It was a very pleasant experience. Glad to hear you had a good experience, Stephen. You know, something uh, that has become very apparent to people who listen to this podcast, I think, is that you've had a huge variety of experiences in Hollywood. It's not, that's not even an adequate term, you know? Variety's not even an adequate term. Um, but I guess my question is, is there anything you haven't done in all your time in Hollywood? Yes. Yes, David. Yes. In my 40 years in show business... And I'm saying 40 because that's how long ago I got my SAG card minus several years of unemployment. There is one thing I've never done that I've never been asked to do, not even by you, David Chin, after you asked me to review The Mummy 3. And, and I've asked Stephen to do a lot of things. A lot of Virtually things. Virtually everything. V- virtually everything. I, I ended up carrying an ironing board for you, I remember, as, as did Anne. Um, mm. But I have never been asked to present my list of the top 10 movies ever made. Not on Slash Film, not anywhere. And people do this all the time, especially around New Year's. Now, I know we're nowhere close to New Year's, but while I'm isolating myself from the coronavirus, David, I want to throw my hat into the ring. And maybe it's because I was a child of the 50s and a college student of the 60s with my name registered with the draft to be shipped to Vietnam, but I see the world a certain way. It was my sophomore year in college. The government divided all young men age 18 to 21 into three groups. They had a nationally televised lottery where they read out birthdays. It was probably the highest rated show of all time. Group one was going to war. Group three was staying home. I was in group two. They weren't sure what was going to happen to group two. Lack of certainty. Perfect for a young actor. I was beyond the help of prayer. I had to rely on my student deferment. 
1970, student deferments were hanging by a thread. Senators and congressmen were determined to eliminate them for all non-essential degrees. I was working on a BFA in acting. Probably borderline. Essential, maybe not. But pleasant, absolutely. What good is the world without pleasantness? If I wanted to be a dentist, no one would question giving me a deferment, even though people can go years without a professional cleaning. On the other hand, everyone goes to the theater. I was currently doing Moliere's The Imaginary Invalid, and audiences loved it. But the word on campus was that our nation wanted fewer arts majors and more soldiers. My deferment would be put to the test. It withstood that first year. It held up through the onslaught of Joan Potter, my psychotic acting teacher who kept trying to kick me out of the drama program. I was desperate. The prospect of being thrown out of school carried the potential of dying young and never falling in love. But the war ended. Suddenly. And my life became an explosion of joy, disbelief, gratitude, and recurrent nightmares. These years shaped my view of filmmaking. I was an emotional young actor. I loved scenes where I could throw furniture or pound my fists on a desk. This is probably why I've always favored serious films over comedies when putting together a list of the best movies of all time. My list of great films would have to include The Deer Hunter, The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, The Best Years of Our Lives, Citizen Kane, and High Noon, and probably On the Waterfront and Casablanca. Since I also like a good joke, I'd have to include great comedies like Duck Soup, his Girl Friday, Some Like It Hot, The Graduate, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, When Harry Met Sally, The Princess Bride, and of course, Groundhog Day. And I should include Sullivan's Travels and It's a Wonderful Life. Both films are ultimately comedies, but they get there through the realm of nightmare, a path I know well. I wasn't counting, but I think that's more than 10. This is why I'm not good at creating these kinds of lists. Sidebar, I think a lot of my success in life was in realizing at an early age that I needed to work hard to avoid things I'm not good at, like working. Over the years, the list has grown to include doing household repairs on my own, changing vacuum cleaner bags, dressing for success, and first dates. I should probably skip over my selection process, just get to the top three films of all time because they are unassailable. The third best film of all time, The Bride of Frankenstein. Amazing performance by Boris Karloff. Powerful and heartbreaking. The scene where the monster meets the blind hermit is profound and moving. Even Mel Brooks made fun of it. Directing by James Whale, both grand and simple. The scenic design pushes the imagination, as does the cinematography. I don't really have a second best film. It could be any from the previous lists I've offered. I'll go straight to the best film ever made, without question. It is Taken, starring Liam Neeson. I must have seen this movie 50 times from beginning to end and a 100 partial viewings as I was just grazing with the TV changer. Cable stations used to play it back to back to back to back until they made two sequels, which I can't stomach. There's nothing more comforting than going to a strange city on a job and you get to your hotel room, turn on the TV, 
and there is taken. Liam Neeson is always good, but in this film, he could take a punch, and I mean a lot of them, and he gives as well as he gets. The structure of the script could change Hollywood forever. Before Taken, movies had one bad guy, like Goldfinger. But even that franchise realized they'd have to branch out and give some of the heavy lifting to Oddjob. They couldn't center all of the suspense on James Bond getting his crotch lasered by Goldfinger. If James Bond ever fought Goldfinger mano-mano, it would be over before it started. Goldfinger was old and, frankly, a bit of a dandy. In Taken... The narrative mold was not just broken, it was obliterated. The movie doesn't have one or two villains. They're 50 or 60, which is hard to do in this age of political correctness. The screenwriters had to pick bad guys that didn't come from a protected group. And they couldn't be all white, or the movie would just be like every other movie I saw growing up. The solution was close to genius. They came up with Albanians. Who are they? No one knows. But these are not your ordinary peace-loving Albanians. No, these are gangster, whoremongering Albanians. None of them have names. None of them shave regularly. But the lack of personalization of the adversary doesn't make the story weaker. No, only stronger. To add scope, the film has bad guys in tuxedos. Class is an illusion. They have the best friend turned bad guy. Friendships are always limited by self-interest. And they have a chic. Some stereotypes are true. And Liam Neeson kills them all. All of them. He warned the Albanians and us that he had acquired a particular set of skills and that he and the writer and director delight us and inspire us with those skills for 90 solid minutes of film magic. Taken dares to do what no movie has done before. It doesn't save the best for last. There's no car chase scene like in Bullet or Oxygen Destroyer like in Godzilla that signals to the audience, yes, this is great, but you better finish your popcorn because we're almost done. Taken starts the best after about 15 minutes of setup, and it doesn't let up. Taken, like Die Hard before it, glories in the strength of the individual. Whether you like it or not, movies are metaphors. They're not just stories to introduce pleasant characters that love and hate and triumph or fail. Every work of art is an instruction as to how we should use this miraculous and bewildering gift called life. How can our love become less frail? How can our passions heal rather than harm? How can Kramer versus Kramer or The Seventh Seal or Tarzan's New York Adventure Help us decode the mystery of our days. Days that pass so quickly that we wonder if there was any purpose to our struggle. Taken is unafraid of handling the hard questions. The answer is, you fight. You fight to save what you love. You go anywhere and you do anything. You give all you have with no thought of gain. The purpose of life is to protect what you have brought into the world and nurtured. The hardest thing I ever had to do was become an actor and to love Beth and to leave Beth and to marry Anne and to become a father and to make the house payments and survive a broken neck and heart surgery and do the Jeffersons live in front of a studio audience. Is that 10? I tell you, I'm not good at lists. But the people at SMU did not know and Joan Potter 
did not know, and even I did not know, that I had a particular set of skills that could make me a nightmare for people like her. And if she didn't leave me in peace, I would not rest. I would not stop until I graduated and ended up with more screen credits than she had. A lot more. That's probably why Taken is so great. I didn't know it until I saw it. It's the story of my life. Sort of. When I finished writing the first part of this story, I gave it to Anne to see if she liked it. I call it the Anne test. She gives me her honest opinion, within limits. I know she'll always tell me it's good, because that's what married people do, and I can exact retribution in so many unfair ways. But over the years, I've learned how to decipher how good a story really is by the way she tells me how good it is. Stephen, it's so good means the story is effective even though it's riddled with cliches. Or, Stephen, I love it. Which means she didn't hate it, but I should consider a rewrite. However, if there are no words, just a nod of the head and a smile. Home run. I could tell she really liked this story. Not as much as Dark Matter, the story I wrote about when we got married, or the England-Finland trilogy about our first romantic trip together and how we almost killed each other. Stories like that are always sweet if you stay together. If you don't, it just becomes another recurrent nightmare. That night, Anne and I were in bed looking for something to watch on television. I was flipping between Hometown and the best of Steve Irwin, Crocodile Hunter. Terrible viewing choices. Hometown is not my favorite house remodeling show for meteorological reasons. Their hometown appears to be so humid, everyone sweats excessively. I feel like I need a shower during every remodel. I end up shouting at the set, just buy a damn air conditioner! As for the best of Steve Irwin, Crocodile Hunter, no, can't do it. I'm still grieving. I may never forgive stingrays. Between the snorkeling and the sawing, Anne looked at me with something that resembled concern. Something wrong, Annie? I asked. Stephen, I should have said something about your story. Uh, yes? I can't believe it, but I've never seen Taken. You're kidding! I couldn't believe it. Even if you've been married to someone for 30 years, they still have secrets. Footnote. I was in the delivery room for the birth of both of our children. Now you think you would get to know everything about a person in a delivery room. In fact, William was a cesarean, so I got to know Anne's bladder when the doctor pulled it out of her body. It was surprisingly attractive. But I had no idea she had never seen Taken. I was in such shock, my thumb stayed on the channel change button too long, 
And here is when I experienced the miracle. And I'm not exaggerating for dramatic effect. There it was, taken. It was going to start on AMC in five minutes. You can call it a coincidence. I call it fate. Anne said, Oh, Stephen, I should watch this. I need to watch this if it's your favorite movie. Baby, you don't have to ask me twice. Anne snuggled up and prepared for the ride of her life. In retrospect, it wasn't as much of a coincidence as it sounds. The odds are pretty high that on any given day, Taken is going to be on some channel on cable television. Sidebar. We often call something a coincidence if there appears to be a surprising alignment of elements outside of our control. In this case, finding Taken on television on the day I finished writing a story about Taken and gave it to Anne to read. In truth, coincidence is almost always a marker of our lack of understanding on how the universe works. I let my rabbit play in the yard until it looks like it's going to rain. Then I gather him up and put him in his hutch. The rain usually starts about a minute or two later. I imagine my rabbit thinks that my putting him into his cage starts the rain. After all, I bring him carrots. I can also bring the rain. Or maybe he doesn't think that at all. Maybe rabbits don't spend time thinking about the big questions. It's probably a reflection of how much time I spend thinking about where I get my carrots. The film began. The movie moved rapidly through the opening scenes. Act one of Taken is brief. The main characters are established in the first two or three minutes. I couldn't wait for Anne to see the next hour and 15 minutes. Act two, or what I call the action section of the film. But we did have to wait. Before Liam Neeson's daughter is kidnapped in Paris by Albanian sex traffickers, there was a commercial for Skittles where a Bahamian man milks a giraffe for candy. And then there was a commercial for Colaguard, a company that encourages you to send stool samples in the mail somewhere. And then there was a commercial where everyone in a family was eating the father's Cheetos, even the cat, and I felt like the narrative battering ram of Taken was being blunted by commerce. AMC used to show feature films without commercial interruptions. Not anymore, obviously. Now, I don't blame the network. They're concerned with their bottom line, and a film like Taken is going to get a lot of eyeballs. They would be foolish if they didn't take advantage and cash in. However... I was disappointed that Anne might not be getting the best first impression of the film. I could tell her interest in the movie began to wane when she grabbed her computer and started scrolling through Facebook, which to me is like driving across the desert on a family vacation. The film ended. Without looking up, Anne said, What? Is it over? Yes, it was confusing. AMC did the condensation thing where they showed the last scene of the movie and the credits at the same time, making it impossible to see either. Anne looked at me with a mixture of disbelief and disdain, usually reserved for when I watched The Three Stooges. That is your favorite movie? Yes. More than Babette's Feast? It's close, but yes. Liam Neeson kills so many people. Yes, many, many people. Without commercials, it's relentless, unforgettable. You think that's realistic? Realistic? What's real? What's not real? This is a movie. I'm not sure real is the issue. 
Remember when Liam Neeson says he has a particular set of skills? Yes, you mentioned that line several times. Well, one of those skills is killing people. Would you agree? Yes, and making bombs and shooting people with their own gun. It seemed like he did that three or four times. Right. Now, that is not what people do, realistically. Simple question. Have you ever stabbed anyone other than yourself in the kitchen? No. Anne began staring at me like she wanted my head to explode. I pressed on. Right. Stabbing someone. Really stabbing someone is difficult to do. You have to practice, which is illegal. Liam Neeson can do that, and he can probably make a knife out of anything. He could make a knife out of a shoelace and kill someone with it. Those skills, albeit unrealistic, saved his daughter's life. And as much as we admire Liam Neeson for his heroism, the movie makes the point that those skills don't necessarily make a marriage work. Stephen, I'm disturbed you've thought about this so much. It's not me. The film forces you to see these issues. Well, what particular skills do you think are necessary to make a marriage work? Um, believing in your partner, not to criticize, keeping your mouth shut whenever possible, and seeing Babette's Feast without complaining. You loved that movie. Yes, I did, but I didn't think I would. It had a very unexciting title. It sounded like a girl movie. Anne rolled her eyes. But it wasn't. It was profound. Beautiful. And I probably wouldn't have seen it if I weren't in a relationship with you. That movie is a gift I received because of you. Anne lay her head on my shoulder. I'm so glad. Actually, when you think about it, Babette's Feast is basically the same movie as Taken. Except in Babette's Feast, no one was burned alive by hot steam. No, but Babette also had a particular set of skills. Hers were culinary, which is more acceptable in our culture. Just like Liam Neeson, she was an expert with a knife, but she used it on a tile fish. Just like Taken, Babette's Feast is a film about lost love and sacrifice. Its theme also focuses on the power of the individual to change the natural course of events, which we are reminded is usually pretty awful. I'm not sure about the comparison, but I'm glad you liked Babette's Feast. Something like that gives a woman confidence that the man she's living with has a soul. Anne smiled. What? I asked. What's with the smile? Nothing. It's just... No, no. Tell me. Tell me. I just wanted to remind you that Babette's Feast is an older film than Taken. Well, of course, yeah, like, what, 20 years? At least. So your point is... My point is, Babette's Feast isn't the same film as Taken. Maybe Taken is the same film as Babette's Feast. Maybe. Just without the visceral satisfaction. And then I thought about it. Anne was right. There was something sublimely ass-kicking in the way Babette made that turtle soup. If you consider that films are just transpositions of a dream, then you could make the case that several themes from Taken and Babette's Feast could have come from the same dream. It's not that surprising. Theater history demonstrates that narratives are often reimagined. The story that became Romeo and Juliet existed in different incarnations in Italy a hundred years before Shakespeare wrote his classic. And there's probably six earlier versions of the Hamlet story. It's common for films to return to stories that have worked in the past. The Magnificent Seven is the same movie as The Seven Samurai. 
they didn't even bother changing the name. A Bug's Life is also inspired by the Kurosawa classic. Without much effort, you could argue that Ocean's Eleven is the same movie with just four more character actors. All of the films are built around a group of individuals, each with a particular set of skills, banding together to take on a larger foe, which is a perfect description of The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien predates Kurosawa by decades. Was Kurosawa inspired by Tolkien? Did he even know of his existence? It doesn't matter because the narrative predates them all by centuries. The Greek playwright Aeschylus wrote Seven Against Thebes in 467 B.C. Taken is not from the same narrative line as the Seven Samurai. It's not a story of unity and cooperation against a common enemy. It is the story of one singular force against many, against all if necessary. The motivating element is not the apocalypse, like in The Lord of the Rings, but a father saving the life of his child. The narrative of Taken is a call for justice that is personal, not societal. In fact, Taken takes the position that society is so corrupt, it cannot be saved. It's left to the individual using the skills they have acquired to make their way in the world. Most of the highly skilled people in Taken are murderers, thieves, pedophiles. Liam Neeson becomes a nobleman in our eyes, not for what he is, but by what he fights for. In this case, his daughter's life. The protection of children may be a clue as to when this narrative became part of the collective unconscious of mankind. The story of Abraham and Isaac in the book of Genesis centers around this theme. No one is really sure when this story was written. Most biblical scholars agree it had to have originated at least 3,000 years ago. It's one of mankind's oldest stories that's still widely read today. This is one of the first stories I learned in Sunday school. I don't think it had the effect on me the rabbis hoped for. I was horrified. As a six-year-old, I didn't see the story from Abraham's point of view, but from Isaac's. Isaac's father took him up the mountain, placed him on an altar, sharpened a knife, and prepared to cut his throat. Our rabbis were telling us that this horrible man is the father of Judaism? Isaac was his miracle. His name meant laughter, and now his father is going to murder him? The story changes from a tale of horror to one of compassion, if we see it through the lens of the movie Taken. When society's corruption becomes so complete... A single man has to change the rules and remake the world. In the Mesopotamian Empire at the time of Abraham, the sacrifice of children was common to gain the favor of Moloch, the local god of the Canaanites. The story in Genesis captures Abraham as he hears the voice of a messenger of God and decides not to harm his son. This action cascades into a revolution. Abraham leads a movement away from the worship of idols to monotheism and the worship of Yahweh, an invisible, universal God, but more importantly, a moral God. With Abraham, God became a force for good and not just for gain. Christianity expanded on this view depicting the eternal battle of good versus evil. Early Christian theologians told their flocks that although evil is everywhere— 
and the minions of the devil are many, without exception, they will all be defeated and punished. The book of Revelation states the new way of the world. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In other words, Liam Neeson. The success of Taken isn't just the acting or the action. It's powerful because it is familiar. It is a narrative that is echoed in our consciousness for millennia. Whether you see it as the story of a father taking on the world to save his child, or the blood of Abel crying from the earth for vengeance, we are heartened that justice will be done. It's more than a story we enjoy. It's a story we believe. Even though Anne was completely wrong about the movie, I had to agree with her about the lack of realism in Taken. Liam Neeson. He's a good-looking man. Great accent. He appears to be kind to his family, and he could do practically everything well. Except keep his wife? Really? No, no, it's true. In Taken, his ex-wife prefers an ultra-rich country club president-type guy that resembles Xander Berkeley. There's several layers of improbability here for me. The main one is, how did Xander not get killed before the wedding? I didn't say the film was perfect. I just said it was the best. There's magic at almost every turn. In one of the earlier scenes, Liam Neeson is barbecuing steaks with his former Green Beret pals. They're laughing about having no purpose in life and their past brushes with death. I wasn't as focused on their stories as I was on the steaks. I knew those steaks would be cooked to perfection. Even though it's not a plot point, nor do the men ever sit down and eat. How did I know that? I was informed by the unspoken, unwritten canons of the hero narrative. Psychotherapist Carl Jung suggests that the ability to imagine a hero posits the existence of a hero. When it comes to understanding the world, which comes first? Identifying what is real or imagining what is real? Science versus art. Movies are a mysterious combination of both. Motion pictures have always seemed dedicated to challenging our notions of reality, to take the viewer where he or she has never been before, from Georges Méliès' A Trip to the Moon, to James Cameron's Avatar, to a trip inside the human body in the fantastic voyage, to watching antibodies attach themselves to Raquel Welch's wetsuit in the fantastic voyage. The trip doesn't have to be to an exotic locale, it can be an emotional journey. In the 1965 film Patch of Blue, the story centers around the unlikely friendship between an educated black man 
and an illiterate blind white girl. The script creates a modern-day Grimm's fairy tale. Is it realistic? I'm not sure. It has heroes and ogres and a damsel in distress, but brilliant acting and the choice to shoot in black and white with a non-sentimental style makes the film a powerful arena where racism is realistically examined. The science of making movies challenges our understanding of reality as well. The theory as to how moving pictures exists is attributed to a phenomenon called the persistence of vision. Movies were possible because we end up seeing things that are no longer there. There are competing schools of thought as to how this happens. The original presumption was the effect happens inside the eye. An image stays on the retina after it's seen for one-sixteenth of a second. The second theory is that the phenomenon is created in the brain, where the image travels from the eye and remains for one-tenth of a second before it fades away. When shown a series of still pictures in rapid succession and 24 frames per second has been the standard for years, the retention of the image on the retina and in the brain make it appear that still pictures are moving. Today, scientists have broken these events down even more and renamed the process iconic memory. Iconic memory tries to explain the process of persistence of vision through a combination of visual short-term memory, or VSTM, and long-term memory, or LTM. Footnote. Scientists always use initials when they want their work to be taken seriously. These two types of information occur in the eye and create what is called visual persistence. These visual snapshots are interpreted in the brain by what is called informational persistence, where context is added to the visual snapshot. Together, they create a narrative. The story can be our conscious, everyday life, going to the store, walking to the park, or part of our imaginary life when we read a book or watch a movie. Despite the scientific use of initials, these are basically the same ideas Aristotle came up with in the 4th century B.C. Aristotle noted that he saw the image of the sun after he closed his eyes. He assumed that eyes can continue to see what they are no longer seeing, and then he took on the question of why he could remember the images of a dream, something he never saw. Aristotle said that all of our senses seem to have a specific organ dedicated to perceiving it. Eyes, ears, nose, touch, taste, etc. Yet when we sleep, none of these organs are used to create a dream. A dream must be created by either the memory of those senses or the operation of another organ of sense we cannot define, the soul. He takes it a step farther. If the purposes of our senses are perception, awareness, and protection, is this also not the purpose of a dream? I've often gotten help from a dream. I've seen things that were lost. Twenty years after Beth and I went our separate ways, I saw where she lost her favorite pair of sunglasses in a dream. In reality, we were in our 20s. I took Beth to my home in Oak Cliff to show her where I grew up, she was standing on our patio. 
I was in the backyard explaining where home plate was when my brother and I played wiffle ball. In my dream, she took off her sunglasses and put them on the patio wall. I magically appeared back at my childhood home and walked through the unmowed lawn in the backyard, and I found the broken frames in the grass. In our real life, Beth mourned the loss of those sunglasses for so long. Seemed like months. Now, I felt like I should call her and tell her about the dream. But I never did. After all, she lost the sunglasses in the early 70s, and styles have changed so much. Maybe if I actually went back to my childhood home and found the glasses, then, yes, I would have called. Yes, that would have been remarkable. As it stands, it was only a nice dream. But that's not inconsiderable. Nice dreams matter. It felt good when I woke up after finding the glasses in the grass. I have no idea if the sunglasses were ever really there or the dream was symbolic. Like so many dreams, it must remain an answer to a question I never asked. I haven't thought about Beth's sunglasses again till I wrote this story. It's a case where the image persisted until it found expression this time in my sleep. More frequent visions that persist are my nightmares. Not the monsters I feared when I was a child, but the real monsters. The moments in my life I regret. The catalog of hurts, real and imagined. The moments when I lost the game and lost the fight. These hurts have sent me to more than one therapist in my lifetime. One suggested I go out and have random sexual encounters and come back and tell him all about them. One fell asleep while I was telling her the stories of my broken heart. And one told me she wasn't interested in having me as a patient. You know, it doesn't matter if a therapist is good or bad. They all have one common bit of advice. Live in the moment. We all do. The problem is the moment we live in is usually yesterday. It's hard to escape yesterday. It's our persistence of vision. It's why actors have stage fright and golfers have the yips. Too many memories of putts gone wrong. It's why when love vanishes in a relationship, it's hard to start over. The bridge of broken promises looks like the Grand Canyon. Promises are important. It's our attempt to live in the future. Consequently, they become a counterbalance to living in the past. That's why a promise kept is twice blessed. The final act of taken is so brief, it seems like it could be a mistake. After everyone that needs to be killed in Paris has been killed, Liam Neeson and his daughter return to America. His ex-wife and Xander Berkeley meet them in baggage claim at LAX. The girl explodes with joy upon seeing these foolish people and runs back to her life of wealth and privilege with apparently no lesson learned. Xander Berkeley astutely picks up on the potential hurt of the girl's action and offers Liam Neeson anything he needs. Liam Neeson gently rejects Xander's offer as he watches his daughter's joy and whispers, I have everything I need. Taken once more forces us to view our lives differently. Perhaps it isn't the man with the most skills that survives. It's the man with the fewest needs. 
Liam Neeson's ex-wife offers an embrace of apology. He accepts as if he were dying of thirst and her touch is a sip of water. There's a moment of profound grief as he's lost in the persistence of a vision. They go out to Xander Berkeley's car, which was parked at the curb. This is the one moment that is so unrealistic it almost wrecked the movie for me. That car would have been ticketed and towed within seconds in the real world. But rather than drop the film to number two or worse, I let it go. When they cut to the wide shot, I saw the car had a driver, so I blamed him. Liam Neeson refuses a ride, even though he has a shattered arm and carry-on luggage that must contain knives and firearms. We assume the movie is over at the airport, leaving us with the metaphor, the hero walks alone. And that would be a fitting ending. Most avenging angel movies end here. But Taken is no ordinary movie. Suddenly, we're transported to some later moment in time. Liam Neeson's arm is healed. He and his daughter arrive at an unknown address in Beverly Hills. He rings the bell, and the young pop star Shira opens the door. She was the first young woman he saves in the movie. His daughter is speechless upon meeting the star. The scene is a surprising callback to a promise made at the beginning of the movie when we're first introduced to Liam Neeson's abilities as a bodyguard. After her life is saved from a knife-wielding fan, Shira offers to help Liam Neeson's daughter in her quest to become a singer. We, the audience, have forgotten this promise in all of the terror of Paris. Here is the final scene of the movie. The door opens, revealing Shira. Shira says, Hi. The daughter is silent, starstruck. Liam Neeson says, Usually when someone says hi, it's polite to say hi back. The daughter in tears says, Hi. Shira says, I heard you want to be a singer. The daughter says, I do. Liam Neeson says, She does. Shira smiles and says, Well, come on in. Let's see what you got. The film ends with a promise kept, not by Liam Neeson, but by Shira. And that is why we are not doomed. Very few of us will ever have the skills Liam Neeson has. We don't have the patience to spend hours punching sandbags and throwing knives at targets. But we can all have the skills Shira has to keep a promise. Liam Neeson and his daughter enter the house with Shira. Her vocal coach is in the background warming up at the piano. The door closes and we fade to black as the daughter's dream to become a singer is about to begin. And we're left to consider the possibility that the word taken has a dual meaning, a crime of abduction or an opportunity accepted. The opportunity that arises from a promise kept. Memorable and innovative, appealing to the heart, the mind, and our limitless thirst for revenge. Taken is my number one film of all time. Of course, compiling top ten lists of anything is a fairly meaningless task. It's a snapshot of a preference at a single moment in time, an iconic memory that will lose its context as the years go by. And now that I've offered mine, I'm left with a question. Is the number one film the first one you want to remember? 
or the last one you want to forget? Well, we all finish with more questions than answers. To understand the meaning of it all, we have to rely on art. And if that doesn't work, we still have our dreams. That was Persistence of Vision, a series of stories as told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. You are listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, here's what I've learned from this week's episode of the podcast. Is this podcast should have been called The Anhern Tobolowsky Files. That is true. And and it was difficult to negotiate with Anne because, you know, she's a very she's a very picky actress. You know, she wanted to have uh what we, you know, she wanted to put her stamp of approval on all of her performances. Yeah, she, she wanted to get final cut. On final the cut, right? Yeah. That's that's the Out, outrageous, request. outrageous, outrageous. And 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 all the bonbons she wanted in her trailer. It was just tough. She's she's a tough one. All right. Well, in any case, thanks for listening <laughs> to this week's episode of the Double Files. Stephen, we're doing video versions of the podcast. Where can people find those? I think that would be at youtube.com slash Tobofiles. Um, every week we do this, I'm like walking a tightrope. <laughs> and I'm like waiting to Did see I if you're going right? to catch me. You're, you're going to catch me when I... You nailed it this time. Oh, it's right. youtube.com slash Tobofiles. Check out video versions of the Tobolowsky Files there. And uh, check out simplecast.com for making this podcast possible. Uh, Simplecast.com is a great podcast management and uh, analytic service. And we really appreciate them for helping to power the Tobolowsky Files this season. Stephen, until next week, we'll see you later. Adios.